0: Vernon Mann, thanks for tuning in. It's the autumn of 1978. Come with me to Tehran, Iran, where popular unrest is bubbling to the point of revolution. Martial law is in force after demonstrations against the Shah of Iran and his Pahlavi dynasty. People have been shot and killed. A general strike is paralysing the country. Why? Because the Shah and his family and his mates are fabulously rich thanks to Iran's oil. So, and boy does this sound familiar, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and increasingly unhappy. Step in the wily Muslim cleric Ayatollah Khomeini, exiled in France. He spreads his message by cassette, thousands of his tapes duplicated and passed around the bazaars. His message, get rid of the Shah. Islamic clerics stir the protest pot at Friday prayers. People take to the streets, Buildings are burned, protesters are shot. We're on the streets too, trying to chart and assess the progress of the revolt. It's not easy. There's little if any official word from the Shah's people. There's no press office where we can go to get information. Likewise with the revolutionaries. Their leaders are a shadowy lot and they must have an office somewhere, but they're not telling us where it is. So we roam the streets, filming a demonstration here, police violence there, interviewing protesters, just reporting what we see. We leave it to the diplomatic editors in London to explain the broader picture and speculate on potential outcomes. This wasn't the first time I dipped my toes into the revolution. A couple of months previously, just after it all kicked off, I fly into Tehran on KLM. I get as far as immigration... But they don't stamp my passport. Instead, a young guy unceremoniously pulls me from the desk, looks at all the stamps in my passport and says disdainfully, journalist, and spits on my feet. I gather he is one of the fledgling revolutionary guards, initially just a bunch of revolutionary student zealots, later co-opted as ideological defenders of the revolution, now a powerful branch of Iran's armed forces, President Trump designated them a foreign terrorist organisation. I was escorted, well, frog-marched, really, out of arrivals and into departures and told I have to go back to London on the same KLM flight I'd arrived on. The obnoxious little toad, probably still in his teens, stays with me till I climb the steps of the aircraft and disappear inside. As a journalist who travels a lot, I'm allowed to hold two British passports. This is because foreign embassies often keep your passport for sometimes weeks when you apply for a visa, which means, of course, you can't go anywhere else. Back in London, then, I get some business cards made up describing myself as a dealer in fine oriental carpets with a false Mayfair address and a made-up phone number. I get the same KLM flight the next day, travelling via Amsterdam. There's a shop at Schiphol Airport called Dr Muller's, It's an odd combination of bar and soft porno movie shop. You can go in, have a beer and watch a naughty film while waiting for your connecting flight. Don't know if it's still there now. Have a look next time you're passing through. The great thing is you get a receipt and charge it up as medical supplies for the revolution. Dr. Muller, get it? Years later, one of the company accountants walks past and recognises the name from the dozens of expense claims he's signed off. To his credit, he thinks it a great joke and delights in relating the story to his bean-counter mates. So I touch down in Tehran and present my other passport with a business card. I look for the boy Toad, but he's not to be seen. My passport is stamped and I'm in. Our Tehran operation is modest in comparison with the US networks. Just one correspondent and me, the producer, a camera crew film editor and a couple of local drivers. The technicians' union, the ACCT, insist we have an electrician. The foreign desk sends one out. He goes straight to his room and stays there, refusing to come out. Too dangerous, he says. What did he expect? After a couple of weeks, we send him packing. Tehran is a cash situation. No cards, no bank transfers. Banks are closed anyway, because of the strike. In London, after a long, whiny lunch before we left one time... The correspondent and I pick up £64,000 in cash from the chief accountant. This is a shed load of dosh in the 70s. Five years earlier, I bought a house in Chiswick for 22. How are you going to keep it safe? Asked the chief accountant. I say, well, I'll put some cash in this inside pocket, some in my trouser pocket, maybe some in my bag. I hadn't really thought about it, to be honest. He goes red in the face and launches into a bulging-eyed rant about irresponsible journalists, no regard for budgets, etc., etc. The correspondent and I get the giggles. Just F off and get out of my sight, screams the chief accountant. So we do. In Tehran, we acquire a fixer-interpreter called Jamshid. We find him on a street corner, waving a Quran in the air and shouting, God is great, with a few other guys. We approach him warily. He could be a Savak secret service agent, and anyway, Westerners aren't that popular in Tehran right now. But Jamshid seems receptive. After some curbside negotiations, his friends have melted away. He accepts our offer of a hundred U.S. dollars a day to translate, interpret, guide, and help us out any way he can. We're taking a bit of a chance, but we really have no choice. We can't put an ad in the paper. So, Jamsheet becomes our full-time fixer, and a legend is born. He's a big guy, six foot four, a commanding presence, bushy black beard, which he says he only grew to fit in with the revolutionaries. He says he has his own publishing business, which he has had to mothball due to the present situation. What about working with Western journalists, I ask? Are you comfortable with that? Jamsheet is very comfortable with $100 a day, he replies with a smile. In the coming months, he proves a godsend, getting us into places, getting us out of trouble. Within weeks, he becomes a preferred supplier of drugs to the entire press corps. I don't think he takes drugs himself and his business on the side doesn't seem to detract from his work or loyalty to us. The rich people of Tehran live on the hills above the city. Lovely views of the mountains, upmarket shops, restaurants and bars – the poor live at the bottom of the hill, in the bazaar area, with no view at all and hardly any money. And that's why they've taken to the streets. They're encouraged by cassette tapes recorded and smuggled in by Ayatollah Khomeini. It takes a while for the rich at the top of the hill to realise that those at the bottom of the hill, fired up by the tapes, are really pissed off and deadly serious about getting shot of the Pahlavi dynasty. The daughter of a sugar millionaire tells me the first inkling she has that things are getting serious is when the maid refuses to take the poodle for a clip. Dogs not being too popular in Muslim culture. It was really weird, she complains. Normally as a servant, she did everything we asked. Finally, though, the rich figure out that the revolution is for real. They rush to leave the country before the airport closes, leaving possessions and empty houses in their wake. There's a tale of a grandmother leaving for the States with a million dollars in cash taped to her body. Children's rucksacks are packed with foreign currency, jewellery and valuables secreted amongst clothing and suitcases. At check-in desks, there are fights as passengers scrabble to get into the departure lounges. Israelis send armed soldiers to attempt order out of chaos, as those with Israeli passports, and many without, battle to be on the last El Al flight to Tel Aviv, They kick and rifle-butt panicking passengers. While planes are still flying, I go to the airport with our day's film coverage and try to find a passenger who can be persuaded to take the package to London, promising they'll be met by representative of the company at the other end. People are surprisingly willing. ''I'll wrap it in my red knickers,'' a school-marmish lady in her prime assures me, opening her suitcase eagerly. ''Don't you worry about a thing, dear?'' The film surfaces in Scotland three weeks later, uselessly out of date. In normal times we process the film and edit our reports at the local TV station, stories then transmitted by satellite at a prearranged time. For a week or two we get the film processed at a private lab, but revolutionaries order it shut down. Even when we're getting it processed they often won't let us into the TV station. I turn up one night and the guard refuses to let me in. I have a satellite booking at nine o'clock, I say, pointing at my watch. He says, where is your satellite, and searches me for it, patting my pockets and jacket. I point you at the stars and try to explain that I should be transmitting our film from the TV station and that we book time on a satellite which is up there in the sky, I say, pointing upwards. I get a blank look. Well, that's the end of that then. For a few days, our cameraman's film coverage lies undeveloped on his bed soul destroying historic footage going to waste our sound recordist refuses to go out on the streets what's the point if we can't get the bloody pictures back to London he says it's a good point so I become the sound recordist as we film the aftermath of a shooting outside a police station they'd killed 13 demonstrators the night before bloodstains still on the pavement quiet now but then a shot rings out and police appear on a balcony guns at the ready the cameraman carries on filming that's what they do cameramen are mostly mad. Alarmed, I shout, ''Let's go! Let's go!'' and he finally admits to danger and runs for cover, followed by me, my recording kit, joined to his camera by a cable. So with the airport and the TV station shut, how to get our film out? What to do? Come in Arab Wings, the air charter company based in Jordan. Emboldened by Captain Khan's heroic Learjet landing, narrated in a previous episode, They tell us if we want a jet, just call them in the morning and it will be in Tehran early afternoon to fly us back to Jordan in time to get the film processed and edited at Jordanian Television for that night's news. From then on, my routine three or four times a week goes like this. Up at six, quick breakfast out with the crew and jamsheet filming demonstrations or whatever else we come across to illustrate the ongoing revolution. Back to the hotel to record a commentary to go with the film. Get Hamid, our loyal driver, to take me to the airport in his bright yellow taxi. Jamshid usually comes with me to help Hamid navigate through the crowds. Sometimes there are close to a million people on the streets. Then we have to persuade the soldiers guarding the road to the closed airport that we have a plane to catch. Not always easy. So hop on the Learjet waiting at the otherwise deserted airport and off to Jordan with a stop for refuelling and a beer in Baghdad. At Armand Airport, a fast taxi to Jordanian Television, an anxious wait as they process the film. Then, with the film editor, put the story together and satellite it to London. Late supper and bed. Next day, up at dawn for the Lear flight back to Tehran. Team up with the crew and correspondent, cover the day's events, fly back to Jordan. I grow weary just looking at that schedule today. On the streets, it's tough. We're not universally liked or trusted. Often protesters think with a brutal secret police, Savak, masquerading as reporters. Filming a demonstration one time, things get a bit scary when a man in the crowd starts screaming, Savak! Savak! and points at me. The crowd take up the chant, surrounding me, prodding me. Jamsheet comes to the rescue. You are Savak! he screams at my accuser. You are Savak! As mentioned, Jamsheet is an imposing figure, well over six feet tall, he wins a shouting match and public opinion turns. The last thing I see as we push through the crowds towards Hamid and his yellow taxi is the poor man on the ground getting a good kicking. Crowds are biggest at and after Friday prayers. Mullers organise huge outside gatherings and whip the mob into an anti shah frenzy. They then march off through the streets, sometimes in their tens of thousands, chanting, ''Death to Shah! Death to Shah! Death to America!'' The next day, angry groups accuse us of underestimating the numbers. You say hundreds of thousands. There were three million. You lie for Shah. We give up trying to explain that these are figures broadcast by the BBC World Service. We're not the BBC, we insist. Nothing to do with us. They don't know the difference. They only know the BBC. Violence appears to be escalating. The Shah's patients wearing thin. Ten people killed during a daylight protest outside another police station. A BBC interpreter shot in the head while sheltering in a shop doorway. His brain splattered over the reporter who was with him. In the mornings, agitated young men speak of their friends being shot by soldiers or Savak during the night. They show me plastic bags containing a mushy, creamy coloured mess. The brains of our friends, they say, killed by Shah. I don't think so somehow, but they insist people are being killed in the hours of darkness. So persistent are these tales of horrors in the night, we head early one morning, soon as the curfew allows, to the city's biggest morgue. The adjoining cemeteries littered with blood-stained bandages, but the area's deserted. It's spooky. In the morgue, we hope to find evidence to back up the nighttime atrocity claims. We're looking for bodies with bullet wounds. An old mustachioed man in a threadbare uniform appears to be on guard. He waves us away, "'shaking his head. "'A fistful of dollars, I offer?' "'He shrugs, stuffs them into his trouser pocket, "'turns his back, and goes for a stroll. "'We venture into the dimly lit interior, "'the cameraman and me. "'The smell is bad. "'We begin pulling out the slabs and looking at the bodies. "'I can't believe I'm doing this. "'The first is a woman, her face wrinkled with age, "'no wounds so far as I could see. "'I didn't look too closely. Two more old ladies, three old men.' We checked out 15 altogether, all elderly. None had been shot or beaten. No story here. The blood-stained bandages remain a mystery. We couldn't see any freshly dug graves, but the cemetery is vast and we can't check it all. What's happened to the people who've been wearing these blood-soaked bandages? We will never know. Jamshid arranges a backstreet rendezvous with a revolutionary activist who says he'll show us what the Shah's troops get up to in the night. We are to black up our faces and spend the curfew hours on a rooftop overlooking one of the city's main streets. We leave the hotel an hour before the dusk curfew to avoid suspicion, camera hidden in a bag. Savak agents are no doubt monitoring foreign media movements. You can see them hanging around the hotel in shabby suits, looking fierce and not doing a lot. We meet our contact, who calls himself Rashid, in a narrow street at the back of the hotel, He's a classic revolutionary, beard, black and bushy, camouflage jacket, combat cap and a pistol tucked into his waistband. As instructed, the cameraman and I spear boot polish on our faces. Rashid leads us at pace through twisting narrow streets, then stops and silently beckons us through an old wooden door. He pauses to listen for any sounds of pursuit and we follow him as he runs up six flights of stairs, keeping up as best we can. We're with him as he crawls across the flat roof to the parapet, cautiously surveying the street below. It's deserted. We set up our gear and wait, not sure what to expect, if anything. We sit in the dark for an hour, listening to the occasional sounds of a city under curfew, a dog barking, raised argumentative voices from a flat across the street. Then the voices go quiet. Like us, they've heard a clanking and rumbling in the distance, growing louder and closer. A tank comes into view at the end of the street, its gun barrel moving slowly from side to side, probing like a giant cockroach. It's a centurion tank made in Britain, first used in the Korean War in the 50s, first one, then another 20 or more, firing ear-splitting blanks every couple of minutes to warn off any thoughts of protest. It's half an hour before they leave the street, trundling off to terrify residents in another part of the troubled city. But there hadn't been any shooting. If the Shah's men are killing people during the night, it's not happening here. he really thought about it, there wouldn't have been any people on the streets to kill because of the curfew. That would be keeping them all indoors. Rumours and counter-rumours spread like viruses. There's no social media to spread fake news. It isn't necessary. As the tanks clatter out of sight people begin to appear on the flat rooftops in twos and threes at first, warily scanning the street. Then whole families, childrens awaken from their slumbers. Soon, every roof space we can see is packed with people. Hello, Akbar! God is great, they begin to chant, a timid murmur initially in this grey first light of dawn. But then with growing confidence, the chorus grows louder and louder as they chant their hearts out. These are not revolutionaries, they're ordinary people just fed up with being pushed around, fed up with being poor. As the sun appears, the chant dies to a murmur and stops. The rooftop's empty. People retreat to their flats and homes to face another day of martial law under the Shah of Iran. We couldn't safely go back to the hotel until an hour or so after dawn when the curfew ended. Otherwise it would have been clear we'd been out all night and there's no shortage of people in the hotel, would have happily dobbed us in. We brought bottles of mineral water with us, and those we hadn't emptied we used to try and wash the boot polish from our faces, not with much success. I remember a room service sandwich in my bag, and offer half to Rashid. He attacks it gratefully, and is about to take a last bite, when he pauses, looks at me with a dismayed expression on his face, and asks, Jambon? Oh God, I give him my Muslim revolutionary friend a ham sandwich, He wretches loudly against the wall as I apologise, and when he's done, he goes without farewell. That's the end of this episode. I'm Vernon Mann. Next time, bye-bye, Shah. Hello, Ayatollah. Thanks for listening. Cheerio.